Genesis chapter 3, uh, I really, look at this text of scripture, uh, I want it to come to life for us today and exactly, uh, I think, God's intentions in placing this section of the Bible um, for us in scripture. First three chapters of Genesis, um, some of you probably know this about me, I, I reference this section a lot when I, when I preach, but Genesis, first three chapters of Genesis are, I think, my favorite chapters of the Bible. I say that every time I preach about any text of scripture, but I'm serious about the first three chapters of Genesis. And the reason I say that is because the foundation of Christianity, the belief, every belief that we stand on can be rooted in Genesis first three chapters of Genesis. Every major doctrine of Christianity, you can start to see the strokes painted for the truth of who God is and what he desires for us to know about him in these first three chapters. They are paramount. And one of the things I want us to recognize as we look at this section of scripture, let me just use this illustration. If you think about... um, these notes on a page, these musical notes, and, and your understanding of music. Like When you look at these notes, for some of you that may not know how to read notes or play an instrument, you look at this and you can kind of appreciate words on a page, uh, but, but just words on a page, there's not a lot of life in that for some of us, right? We look at this and we're like, you know, I know what it is, I can appreciate that. And, and historically, as I maybe explain a section of music like this to you, if I said something like, you know, this is a section of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, symphony that he, he wrote and composed when he was completely deaf. This was the last, uh, the last thing that Beethoven wrote and performed. Um, you, could, you could start to even grow in that historical appreciation of that, these musical notes, right? But when you learn how to take what's on that page and make the application, the beauty of what this page is, it just brings it to life, right? You know, you know the joy of music. That's why we sing as a church, right? Music just ministers to the to the soul. It's a beautiful thing to experience, not just look at on a page, but music is there to experience it, to understand its truth and, and just to kind of live it out as it's, as it's made known. And, and I would say the same thing is true for the Bible. That the Bible, when it's written to us, we look at it sometimes without an understanding, it just looks like thoughts on a page, right? But God's intentions for those words are to breathe life into our lives. And not just to know it, but to really live it, the experience of what it is. And in Genesis, first three chapters of Genesis, a lot of what's shared about the, the life of Adam and Eve is more than just a story. It is a story, but it's something that we walk in every day. And so some of us may look at the story of Genesis, if we were to say a, a summary of this book, we'd look at the first three chapters, and you might even know, you might even grown up in a church, and you know the historical teaching of Genesis chapter three, right? It's about two naked people walking around, talking to snakes, and doing stupid stuff, right? Now, what does that have to do with you? And, and the more you read the story and you get the understanding of what God is, is communicating to us through this story, it starts to bring this off the page and it sings into our soul this truth of what God wants to communicate into our lives. We looked at this last week in the first two chapters of Genesis as God starts to lay out the significance of creation. That Some people come to Genesis and, and they want to know how God created. And they, they'll take the first two chapters of Genesis and they'll argue their, whatever their theology is and how, how God creates. But the first two chapters of Genesis aren't there to tell us how God creates, but rather why God creates. And the crown of his creation is, is humanity making us different than anything else he designs. In Genesis chapter two, verse seven, this beautiful verse describing you that says to you that you are the beauty of his creation. And it says, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. 
God made you beautifully. God made you to connect relationally. And summarized last week, we said this about our, our creation, that when God made us, he said to rule and to bless. God made us to rule and to bless. God made us for relationship. And God made us to rest in his presence. In fact, we got to the seventh day, right? And God said, and he rested. And something interesting about those seven days, you look at the first six days of God's creation, it says God speaks and it was morning and evening of the first day. And God speaks and it was morning and evening of the second day. And every day he calls it good. But when he gets to the seventh day, God never says it's morning and evening. All it says is God rests. And we said, we, we, we talked that the, the intentions of God in saying that is God is distinguishing from us the first six days, his creative work. God is creating, God is creating, God is creating. And then the seventh day, God rests because God never intends beyond his rest for anything else to happen. That God makes us for relationship in him to delight in his presence all the days of our lives. He never says on the seventh day, it's morning and evening and the end of the seventh day. God made you to rest and enjoy your relationship with him for all of eternity, to rule with him, to be a blessing to this world, and and have relationship not just with the Lord, but with one another. In fact, as you look at the rest of Genesis chapter 2, what you see is the the rest of the story unfolds as we're resting in God's presence, then God creates woman, and man and woman have this beautiful union before the Lord. And so God, in our relationship with God, it's then reflected in relationship with each other. Beautiful, harmonious, perfect in relationship and in presence of God. And then what happened? Genesis chapter 3 is that explanation, right? And remember, Genesis is written to a group of slaves. They've just come out of the Exodus with Moses. I think as Moses is writing this this passage to these slaves, he's helping them find identity. Who are we? You can imagine the trauma maybe of a life like that. You've always been told you're worthless. Pharaoh looked down to you. The people of Egypt looked down to you. Who are you? Why does God give a rip about you? And he begins to explain the beauty of who we are in light of who God is, our identity. And as you look at the first two chapters of Genesis, you have to ask the question, like, if this is the way God made things, this is not the way things are. What happened? Why do we have adversity in life? Now, I want you to know, I'm not going to explain where evil comes from. I don't have time to dive into that today. But I I will let you know, knowing that I wasn't going to talk about where evil comes from this morning, I wrote it on the blog on our church. So if you go to our website or you go to the app and you click on blog, you can read about if you're interested in where evil comes from. But I'm going to to talk from the perspective of, of what evil has done in our lives and what God's solution is to it. So the big question is, what in the world happened? If we were perfect, everything was perfect, how did we get to where we are today? And you start to see how sin is introduced into life in the first uh, few chapters uh, of Genesis. Like how sin was introduced, or AKA we could say how Adam and Eve stepped in it. Whatever you want to picture the it as, they stepped in it, right? And so how did this happen? Well, first five verses of Genesis, it tells us it was the snake's fault, right? Here it goes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. 
The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That silly snake. (laughs) You start to read these first few sections of scripture. I I just want you to know, by the way, I'm going to say something. And if you don't agree with me, we're going to still, we can still be friends after this. But I don't believe in talking snakes. And I don't believe in talking snakes in the garden. <laughs> um, I, 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 um, well, let me give you a practical reasons why I don't think what's really being said here is a snake talked. All right. Um, I, I know um, my wife, from, if she represents any perspective of women at all, um, when it comes to snakes, that ain't happening, right? When it comes to talking snakes, that has never happened, right? Like, in, in the back of our house, I probably shouldn't tell you this if anyone visits, but I have a snake that lives in the back of my yard, right? And um, I know where it lives. I refuse to tell my wife where that's at. But the reason I know it's, it's the same snake is it's got a particular scar on its body. And every time I see it, I just, we, you know, we hang out in the backyard. It's a regular visitor. And the reason I like the snake is because I, I hate mice worse, okay? And so the snake does its job. I have no mice. And me and the snake get along great. But I can tell you, rest assured, if that snake ever talked, <laughs> it would not be in my backyard. Right? Like, and and you, you read this story of, of Adam and Eve, like Adam and Eve walking through the garden. Eve's like, man, Adam's too busy to talk to me right now. Oh, the snake wants to chat. Let's chat. No lady's going to talk to the snake, right? Like if there's a talking snake, no one's stopping to talk to the snake. But, but what I think this passage of scripture is communicating to us is the nature of the identity of Satan. Satan is like a snake. Uh, Hebrew literature is pretty interesting in in how it chooses to describe uh, characteristics of individuals or even God. If you read the Greek, in the Greek, Greek is very descriptive uh, of identity. Like it would say, you know, God is omnipotent and eternal if it wanted to describe who God is. And we, we get a grasp on the details of those words and identity of who God is. Well, in Hebrew, you would say something like, well, God is from everlasting to everlasting. Like, why don't you just call him eternal? They're not, they're more poetic and they would attribute identity to him by saying something like, well, God is like a rock or God is like a bear or God is like an eagle. And this imagery paints a picture in your mind rather than all these adjectives. They just choose these words that paint this imagery in your mind. Well, the same is true, I think, for Satan. Rather than go in this long explanation of who he is, it chooses a word to express his identity. He is a snake. Uh, if you want to consider another passage that describes Satan in the Garden of Eden, uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 13 to 19 describes Satan in the Garden of Eden. When you look at that description, a snake is never mentioned. In fact, when it describes Satan's appearance in the Garden of Eden, it describes him as this angelic being full of this array uh, of jewelry. He just shines and radiates. That is far different than a snake, right? There should be no jewels on snakes. <laughs> but when it describes Satan in Ezekiel 28, it describes this image of beauty. And when you get to the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, verses 19, uh, Jesus says to his disciples that you have the authority over Satan to, to trample serpents and scorpions. Uh, I don't think Jesus is really saying to his disciples, look, uh, just go step on all kinds of snakes when you see them. I think what Jesus is saying to them, rather, is the snake and the scorpions tend to uh, personify what evil is, and you have the authority over them. And when he's describing a snake in the Garden of Eden, I think he's describing the personification of the nature of Satan. In fact, when you read in the New Testament, 
This word in, in Hebrew, by the way, is nakash. It relates to an enchanter, one who's double-tongued, who speaks deceivingly to people. Um, Satan is described that way in the New Testament. He's, he's described as a deceiver, John 8, 44, 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3. He, he's described as this angel of light, which is what's expressive in Ezekiel 28, as, as he said, as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. He, in Revelation 21, rather than being expressed as a snake, he's called a dragon. So apparently somehow he grew some wings, right? Um, but you, you get the idea of his nature and what he's up to and the description that it's giving to us in the Garden of Eden. His intentions are not good. Now, Adam and Eve are completely responsible for the decisions that they make, but Satan is trying to deceive them. And I I want us to pay attention to the way that Satan moves through his deception in Adam and Eve. In verse 1, here's what he says. He says, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Like, there's there's a step process in how Adam and Eve are being deceived by Satan here. And the first thing Satan does is he gets them to question the truth of what God says. Did God really say that? Questioning his truth. Guys, can I just encourage us as I think about the way that the enemy works? Um, be careful with truth. I got... One of the things that this past week, uh, I watched a few different debates in our valley. And, um, and one of the things I kept recognizing as people were talking is there was this animosity built up in individuals' lives because at some point someone had lied to them. And they don't want to be deceived again. And their hearts were hardened and even angry over having been lied to. It's difficult when you're lied to, to want to trust in anything else again. And that makes your position of truth important. To not just say things about God flippantly, but to really come to know him. And to share that truth that changes lives. The first thing that Satan wants Adam and Eve to do is, is question truth. Verse 2 and 3, Eve's response is a little interesting. People spend a little more time on this than I think we should, but Eve responds and said, from the fruit of the tree of the Garden of Eden, uh, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Here's what's interesting about Eve's statement that people like to identify is God never said you shouldn't touch it. God just said, don't eat it. And you see this, this sort of this fabrication of adding on to what God says. And, and people speculate over what, you know, what, why the author wanted to include the, this thought of, of elaborating on the truth or expanding on it beyond what God really said. What God said was just don't eat it. And so let the truth just be the truth. You don't need to add to it. <laughs> Let the truth of who God is resonate with people as you share it. And, and in verse 4, then, then Satan starts to question. He said, the serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. In this one statement, he's actually opposing God in two ways. Uh, first is, he, he wants her to question the identity of God, the character of God. She's saying, not only, not only do you, should you question the truth of what God says, did God really say that? But then he's saying, now let's just question God's character altogether, the identity of who he is. God's, surely you're not going to, I mean, God's lying to you, right? And not only that, in the same thought that he's sharing, he's also saying, don't worry about judgment. 
don't worry about the results. God's not really being forthcoming with you. And then in verse 5, he gives this final thought. For God knows that the day you will eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what he's saying is, look, you know better than God. The knowledge of the tree of good and evil is about this. It's about saying to God, rather than God declaring what's right and wrong, you're going to have the knowledge to declare right from wrong. Meaning God's no longer going to be God. You're going to be God and you're going to dictate to this world what is right and what is wrong. You know better than God. Question is truth. Did God really say? Question is character. Don't worry about judgment. And you know what? You know what's better for you than God does. Forget that he created you for his purpose. Live life for your purpose. As we say this as a church, I like to remind us when it comes to following after the Lord, we like to know everything, but this, this faith that we walk in is a journey. Right? And you get to learn and grow in it every day. And there is a foundation, though, when you begin this journey to rest yourself in. And that's to simply ask, answer two questions. What's the foundation of truth? And who is Jesus? When we get the security of understanding the source for which truth should come, and the identity of who Jesus really is, that's where you rest yourself. And Satan wants Adam and Eve to, to question this. And she, he says, you know, the moment you eat this, you're going to become this elevated being. You're going to become like God, which is a very interesting statement for Satan to make because Isaiah chapter 14 tells us that that's the very thing that caused Satan to be thrown out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. The Bible tells us there's only one God. Isaiah 43, verses 10, Isaiah 44, 6 and 8. There's only one God. That's all that's ever been. That's all there ever will be. And the same lie that got Satan kicked out of heaven is the same lie he shares with Adam and Eve in the garden. And I would say it's the same lie we buy into every day in our lives when we make ourselves before the Lord. And Adam and Eve, you know the story, Right? They sin and how they respond and sin's important. It says in verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight into the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is my future Halloween outfit, right? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, uh, you think about this, and they, they must have the attention span of kids all jacked up on Halloween candy, right? It's like uh, that God, God creates them, God says don't do this, and here we are not even a chapter later, and they're already doing exactly what God says not to do. Um, and then you see the result of, of, of the sin. Adam and Eve declare themselves God, they partake of the fruit. And what's really interesting about this section, verse 6, is, is 
Eve eats of this fruit first, and then it says she gives to Adam who's beside of her. If you look at the, the story as it's told in, in Genesis chapter 2, God never told Eve not to eat of the fruit. God actually told Adam not to eat of the fruit, and Adam was responsible to share that with Eve. And when Adam went to Eve, maybe somehow, apparently, Adam said to Eve, look, don't eat of the fruit, but in fact, not just don't eat of the fruit. Don't touch it. Don't get near it. Don't do anything about it. Don't even look at it, right? But when it came time to partake of this fruit or the temptation of this fruit, Adam, rather stand up with his, with his wife to fight against the serpent here, he just lets her go down. I mean, he's so close to her that it literally tells us in the story, after she takes a bite, she turns to him. She's like, look, I didn't die. Do you want a piece? Adam just lets her go down. He's like sitting there watching her eat this. He's like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, uh, let's see what happens. If she eats, she doesn't die. He's like, oh, okay. God said, if you eat, you'll die. And, and okay, you didn't die. So give it to me. I want to try this sucker out, right? So they declare themselves in the knowledge of good and evil. They know better than God. They partake of the fruit. And then what happens? Well, death. It tells us in verse 7 how they begin to recognize that they knew that they were naked. Um, this thought is not just simply they, they, they realize they didn't have clothes on, but rather what it's saying is to this point in the garden, they're clothed in the glory and presence of God. Theologians will describe the garden actually as the first temple. And I, I want to let you see this in verse 8 in just a minute. But they were clothed in God's presence. And now all of a sudden, that presence is God. And God himself is life. And when we're disconnected from him who is life, that is death. And so now for Adam and Eve, the clock is just ticking until they find themselves in a grave. But both of them knew that they were naked. And then look what it says. And then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That is just such a weird statement. Who cares? <laughs> until you realize what the author is singing in this passage of scripture. The Hebrew word for fig leaves here, it's a soldier's garment. It's a warrior preparing for battle. Adam and Eve realized they screwed up. And their response to that is to literally create the first man-made religion. Oh no, we messed up. God, we're gonna war and we're gonna fight and we're gonna fix it. And so they, they run and they sew these fig leaves together. They put on these soldiers' garments and, and they start the battle. Cover it up. Every religion since then, that's what it's about, right? Do these rules to cover your sin and then God will love you. But can I tell you, guys, why fight to win a battle when Jesus has already fought and been victorious for you? Do you see this correlation of soldiers' garments? That's what it's saying to us, right? He's about to share with us the story of the gospel. He's saying, look, here's the first foolish thing that they did in their sins. And we do this all the time. God, just let me go fight this battle to prove to you that I'm lovable. Why fight it? Jesus has already fought it for you. And he won. Guys, there's nothing you're ever going to do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you've done that's going to make God love you less. Jesus has already fought the battle and won. How foolish is it to, to cloud our lives with religious performance? 
Jesus wants you in that mess. Jesus wants you. Why keep fighting a battle he's already fought? Not, not only does the passage say this with us, in verse 8 it goes on a little further and it starts to explain something. It's something interesting in the Hebrew I want you to see, but they said they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and man and wife hid themselves from his presence. So he's elaborating further in this verse 8 on the idea of temple. Verse 7, remember, they're, they're clothed in the glory of God. Just like the, the, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, the presence of God, and the temple in the Old Testament, the presence of God dwelled. And they could be clothed in that glory of God. When, when um, the children of Israel ran from Pharaoh, it tells us that the glory cloud of God separated the army of, of, of Egypt from Israel to protect them, that glory cloud. When they wandered through the wilderness, that glory cloud directed them. That glory cloud with Adam and Eve here in the Garden of Eden, and now they know it's been gone, and now they're naked. And all of a sudden, in verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, this is an interesting way to translate this in Hebrew. This, this, this statement in Hebrew, it's accurately translated, but I think there's a better way to translate it. Let me just share this with you. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This, this idea of walking literally just translates as his presence. So his presence is coming near them in the garden. And it says in the cool of the day. Now this word cool is really, really also interesting in Hebrew. This word cool, the only time it's translated as cool in Hebrew is in this verse. Nearly every other time it's translated, it's translated as wind or spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit. And so when you give that kind of understanding of this passage of Scripture, I, I realize that when translators translate, they just have to kind of pick a word that fits. And when you're talking about a garden, cool makes sense, the cool of the day. But there's a much more vivid expression taking place here. And what he's saying is, look, they realize that God's presence wasn't clouding them anymore. And all of a sudden now God's presence is coming back into the garden. And they recognize his presence from the rushing of this wind. Remind you of any New Testament passage? Acts chapter 2, perhaps. The Holy Spirit, when it comes into the church, like a mighty rushing wind. And so here you see in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, the, the presence of God here in what's described as, by theologians as the first temple coming into the lives of, of these individuals. And what, what's their response? They run. They hide from God. How true is this of us today? We mess up. What's in your human nature? To run right for God or to run away? God, I'm not worthy. God, I got to go back and prove myself. And God, I can't come before you right now. Look, I want to be at church, but I got to get my life together first, right? And as soon as I get everything else in order, then, then I'll be okay to come to God, right? From the beginning of the garden, this has been the actions of man. Create religion, run from God, make myself perfect, then come before the Lord. And what God is demonstrating in here in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin is it, that doesn't work. There's only one cure for the wickedness of the heart. And the destruction of sin. And it's not, it's not more of you. You don't need a, a, a better version of you. You need a new you. And being dead and Adam and Eve partaking this fruit, we don't have the ability to bring that life within us. It requires something else. And so in Genesis 9, or verse 9, it starts to explain to us in chapter 3 
how God responds in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin. It says this, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, verse 9, I want you to know from God's perspective is rhetorical. Like, God doesn't wonder where you are. God knows exactly where you are. That's why it's kind of preposterous to think before God, you can cover yourself or you can run and hide from it and it will just eventually go away. Rather, the reason God's asking this question is not because he needs to find Adam and Eve. It's because he wants Adam and Eve to recognize where they are in relationship to him. You think just one chapter before this beautiful relationship they had before God and all of a sudden this chaos happens and now they're running like mad men and women through this garden with barely anything on. Think about these talking snakes everywhere, right? Why don't we listen to him? God's like, guys, what are you doing? Where are you? Where are you? Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I, I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What God is drawing out of Adam and Eve is where their brokenness is. In verse 12 and 13, though, they, they respond one more way to sin that I think is important to recognize. Man said, the woman who you gave, me, gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Like, rather than own it up, he's like, it's her fault, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever you're thinking about doing, God, uh, take it out of her, right? And then, and then verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They're blaming. Back and forth. And then God brings some healing words. Now, our, our tendency, religion doesn't work. Running doesn't work. Blaming doesn't work. So what works? If I'm created for what Genesis chapter 1 and 2 describes, what works for my soul to connect in that way? Now, if you read verses 14 and 19, I'm not going to have time to go through all of that, but verses 14 and 19, God then turns Adam and Eve and he starts to talk about the curse on the earth now. And here's what's interesting. When he starts to talk about the curse, the first thing he talks to is the woman, right? And she talk, he talks about the pain of childbirth and, and relationship to her husband. And then she tur- he turns to Adam and says, and then cursed is the, the, the ground of which you toil by the sweat of your brow and the blood that you drip. It's, you're going to recognize your need for God. And what he's saying is this, that uh, in relationship, he says to the woman, look, in relationship, there's going to be adversity. He turns to the man and he says, look, in the workforce, there's going to be adversity. When you put your hand to the plow, there's going to be adversity. Now, this verse isn't saying women take care of the home, men are the only people that work. That's not what this verse is saying. But I think he is correlating this to the identity of what it means to be made in the image of God between men and, men and, men and women. Um, ladies, if you want to work, work. I don't, this, doesn't, this is not what this verse says. Now, guys, you can't have birth, but... But this passage of scripture is looking to the identity of us being created uniquely in the image of God, and God is speaking into that. And the reason he's doing that is to say this to you. You're going to go through times in life that look difficult, and that difficult should remind you of your need for Jesus. This world is no longer your home. But God's going to create a solution for your soul. And in verse 15, in the middle of all of that, he expresses what that is. He says, and I will put enmity, he's saying this to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, 
and you shall bruise him on the hill. And this is the first presentation of the coming of Jesus. Notice it never talks about the seed of the man. But it says from the seed of the woman, emphasizing a virgin birth, right? From the seed of the woman, this one would come. And he will crush the head of the serpent. This is to show authority and kingship. This king dominates and will crush, but he suffers a heel wound. We know this happens to Jesus on the cross when he's nailed to the cross. But this for us becomes our freedom. That Satan represents darkness and sin. And his kingdom is being crushed so that the real king will rule over our hearts again. And then God gives us this statement. And again, this is one of those passages when you understand it in the Hebrew text, it, it sings to our soul again. But he says this, verse 20. Now the man called his, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. First death. First death in Scripture. And who does it? It's God. God takes the life of an animal, a sacrifice, and he clothes Adam and Eve, right? And the garments of skin. Interesting thought about this word garments. It's the same word used in Hebrew for a priestly garment. When a priest would go into the temple into the presence of God, they would be clothed in this garment. God's presence again. God promises, Genesis 15, 3, 15, one would come to rescue you. And as an illustration of that rescue, he makes a sacrifice. And he clothes Adam and Eve in the presence of God, which they had lost because of their sin. God makes all things new. We try to fix our solutions by our strength. We cover religiously. We try to hide. We try to blame. But you can't fool God. It's impossible. God made us beautifully. And I think that's still true. Everyone in this room, everyone in the world, God made you beautifully. And at the same time, you're beautifully broken. You're broken. And how is that healed? By the one who makes things new. You can't find the solution until you correctly identify the problem. It's not about just making things better. It's about making things completely new. Paul wanted us to understand this thought in Scripture, so much so that when you get to Romans chapter 5, for the first five chapters of Romans, Paul's gone on and on about our sinfulness because we have a hard time understanding the depravity of our lives. Like, sin brings death. And he wants us to understand that full picture. And so in Romans chapter 5, he goes from this Old Testament, he dips all the way back, or the New Testament, he dips all the way back into the Old Testament to the time of Adam and Eve. And look what he says. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned. You want to know why things aren't the way that they were intended to be when God created them? It's because sin has permeated this world into the point that it's infected all of us, and so all have sinned. In verse 17, he goes on further. He says this, For if by the transgression of the one, 
death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. But God. I love that. In, in Romans 5.8, it's that famous verse, but God demonstrates his love towards us and while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's given to us the illustration. Now, in the thought of this, this series that we're going through together, um, one of the things that we, we, we've titled this is Kingdom Come, right? In the beginning, God created everything perfect in his kingdom and for us to enjoy his presence and to rest in him forever. But, but man sins, and he tells us in Genesis 2-7, right? God, God forms us out of the dust of the ground. God breathes in us the breath of life. Man becomes a living being, but then man sins, and the beauty of what that kingdom was intended to be for us to experience, we've been separated from because there's death. But in Jesus, there's life. To tie this together, I want us to see this beauty of God's kingdom from Genesis throughout all of Scripture. But in, in, in John 20, I think this, there's this beautiful illustration that ties it all together. Jesus does this interesting thing. It says, uh, this is after Jesus' resurrection. It says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. You think about the beauty of Jesus' first statement to his disciples. What would Jesus utter when he sees him for the first time? His statement is one of kingdom representation. Peace, rest, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. How much does your soul need that? To stop fighting and let Jesus be enough and to rest in him? And be loved by him. He knows you mess up. He knows you aren't perfect. And he wants to make things new in your life. Jesus said then, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And then he does this weird thing, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that is weird, right? <laughs> you see the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, they think that this must be one of those first century things that we don't let, relate to today, like, you know, greeting one another with a holy kiss. We're not interested. But, but I want you to know, for the disciples, this was weird too. Jesus comes in, he's like, everybody. Like, that, that is a weird thing to do. But why is Jesus doing that? He's connecting the story together. God breathes into man, man becomes a living being, created in the image of God. Man sin comes in, separates God and man. And then Jesus triumphs over the grave. And what's Jesus do? Peace be with you. I'm making all things new. Genesis chapter three shows us the destruction of sin. But at the same time, it shows us what to do with that sin. It's not religion. It's not running and hiding. It's not blaming It's to take wherever your heart is right now and coming before Jesus and saying, God, you're enough. You are enough. Make me new. I screwed up yesterday. I'm gonna screw up tomorrow. But God, in you, there is joy forevermore. Let that peace rule in my heart and let you be enough. 
This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.